Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. 
Hey, hey, hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton bring us an epic presentation of miniature proportions. It's 1998's A Bug's Life. <laughs> Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you can't help it, you just have to look at the light. Then you'll go buggy for the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. And since games master Stephen Smart is busy frying ants with a magnifying glass in his backyard, I'll fill you in on this week's challenge. The movie was 2000's Proof of Life, directed by Taylor Hackford, starring Meg Ryan, Russell Crowe, and David Morse. At Fegfi got it again, but it took him until Image 6, which was pointed out that it's only the second time this year that that's happened. So congrats, you've once again been entered to win the 2016 Pony Prize. Who, who exactly pointed that out, Andy? At Brendo61, he's the one who uh, he uh, did some stats for us. He oh. went back and looked at the whole year. He said, for the record, in 2016, Image 1, we have had 12 winners guess it on Image 1, 10 on Image 2, 6 on Image 3, 3 on Image 4, 5 on Image 5, and just one, well, now two on Image 6. Wow. So, yeah. Wait, so have we had any losses? Like where, you know, the next reel is one? I, you know, it's been quite a while. I feel like... <laughs> um, it's been this year. I, I'm not quite so sure when the last time that happened was. It seems like it's been quite a while, though. That's great. Uh, I think, you know, we got to talk about a blot spot. We've got a follow-up from friend of the show, Ben Lott, on Three Amigos. It's strange that you guys sounded so guilty for loving Three Amigos and wanting to rank it over other great movies. To paraphrase Roger Ebert, you rate each movie based on how well it does what it's trying to do, or something like that. Well, Three Amigos has been one of my favorite comedies since childhood. I've watched it dozens of times, and to this day, it still makes me laugh out loud every time I watch it. If that's not a perfect comedy, I don't know what is. I love this film with all my heart. Your rank 63, my rank 7. Good on you, man. Nice. Nice. I love it. Yes, Bold I shouldn't choice. feel guilty. You no. made me feel guilty, Pete. I'm I gonna... did. <laughs> oh, Andy, I totally own that. I totally own it. Uh, and and I, but but I also don't think we necessarily weren't, or I, I wasn't necessarily going through this saying that you know how well does this movie stand on its own. I think it's legitimately standing up to the movies that we ranked it against. I I, I don't think we have to feel guilty, but I also think that it's true that that the movie legitimately won or lost to the pairings that were presented. Yes, that's fine. All right. We also have some feedback from Dennis Vance on YouTube. You know what? It's about time people start noticing that we actually publish this show on YouTube. <laughs> uh, YouTube is not our most popular channel, uh, and yet Dennis Vance wrote a fantastic comment, and he used appropriate punctuation. Maybe excessively, <laughs> but appropriate. Indeed, indeed. He says, I wanted to love it, but I didn't. I could hate it, but I don't. I might be ambivalent, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the premise for the movie was great, but I was one of those for whom it just didn't quite reach escape velocity. It's one of a few where I like nearly every part of the movie, but not the movie as a whole. The same premise has been used to better effect elsewhere. John Landis can grouse that Galaxy Quest and other movies stole the concept, but the mistaken identity fish-out-of-water trope was around long before this. Now I'm off for an Egg McMego. <laughs> <laughs> what are the... Uh, I don't speak uh, the... I don't speak Spanish. What are the upside-down exclamation points called exclamation marks upside down exclamation marks <laughs> lest i remind you where you live man i thought this was your language 
Oh, because I, I live in Arizona, I should know? Yes. Because, because I studied Spanish for five <laughs> because years. Because you studied and... Spanish for five years. And because I know when you say things in Spanish, you say it with the appropriate amount of enthusiasm as is represented by the upside down exclamation mark. Well, according to uh, the interwebs. <laughs> <laughs> you cheater. Well, I don't know what you call these things. You call it an inverted exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That was anticlimactic. Well, I, you, you I turned it into a thing. I could have come up with that myself. <laughs> this is a situation where grammarians just aren't pushing themselves hard enough. I know. It really should be something. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I'm going to go first because mine's kind of a downer. Okay, go for it. Uh, okay. Uh, Miss Sloan. Andy, Miss mm. Sloan. This yes. from director John Madden and writer Jonathan Pereira, starring Jessica Chastain, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, and Alison Pill, along with Mark Strong, Michael Stuhlbarg, John Lithgow, Jake Lacey, Sam Waterston. Oh my goodness, there are a lot of fantastic people in this movie. It tells the story of a lobbyist. Uh, Jessica Chastain plays a lobbyist, and she decides to go head-to-head against the gun lobby in an attempt to pass gun control legislation. I, you know, I'm a fan of Jessica Chastain, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see the movie probably no matter what, what it's about. Um, it, it doesn't look like the... the uh, what was the one that with uh, uh, what's her name about the having to give up her baby to a lighthouse? Oh, a light between oceans. Ooh, or that's a downer. I didn't see that. Oh man, <laughs> that pulls at the old heartstrings. No, this is not that kind of a movie. I think this is one of those movies that's going to be uh, culturally important. Again, it goes right in line with those movies like um, you know The Big Short and like War Dogs and like Snowden. That whatever you think of them as films, they're tackling issues that are important for us to talk about. And even though this one doesn't appear to be based on a true story, uh, at least not one I think we would have heard about it. Um, it it does look like one that we need to think and talk about. So I like that a lot. Uh, John Madden, oh man, he's been around a long time. Uh, Shakespeare in Love director, Best Exotic Marigold uh, Hotel, he did that. The Debt, he did that. Proof, he directed that. He has been directing for some time, and I do generally like his work. Jonathan Pereira, I do not know much of. This looks like his only feature credit. In fact, it looks like his only credit. Uh, so we'll see. But the trailer looked pretty compelling. What did you think? You know, uh, when a film is titled Miss Sloan, it sounds like it's going to be about a, an angry nurse or... Or a bondage film. <laughs> or something. <laughs> or that, yes. <laughs> it's a, it's another take on Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, but... <laughs> Um, it, it, you know, the, the title, I don't know, I, the title kind of weirdly kind of keeps me pushed away from it, but at the same time for a film about, um, uh, a lobbyist fighting the, uh, the gun lobby, uh, and just, just kind of that world, I think it actually makes it seem quite interesting. I mean, Jessica Chastain, I mean, we talked about how much we loved her in Zero Dark Thirty and she can carry that type of character that might be a little more distance or might be a little more difficult for us to connect with uh, right out of the gate. But she can carry that sort of character so well that that I find myself still drawn to. So I give this uh, a, you know, kind of a definite must-see. Plus, I find that 
the type of political thing. Pretty interesting, and I'm really curious to see what they do here. So uh, so count me in on this one. It doesn't have a, a complete list of release dates. Canada and the United States hit December 9th. Uh, clearly, this is one that they're pushing for Oscar. Uh, at January, it hits Greece, and I assume the rest of the planet, but that's all we know for right now. So there you go. Excellent. Miss Sloan. Well, I was going to talk about bastards, <laughs> because <laughs> when talking about A Bug's Life, how appropriate is it to talk about the trailer Bastards? Not at all. <laughs> so, so I opted for Moana, which is the new uh, Disney film that's coming out this Thanksgiving. I am, of course, a big Disney fan, and I'm super excited to see Moana. Ever since I started seeing images from it, I've been uh, really excited about the uh, the imagery that they're coming up with for this. And this, this uh, new full trailer that was just released just gives us a lot more of the story, and it just looks gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it takes place in kind of the that Hawaiian, uh, the, that type of culture down there, and everything about it has a really interesting vibe, a really interesting uh, just uh, sense of place. Um, we've got a young woman here who has to go find uh, a Moana, this new, I guess she's a new Disney princess. She has to go find the legendary demigod Maui, hilariously played by Dwayne Johnson, which I'm very, very excited about, to kind of get him to help her. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it looks like they've got to fight some sort of volcano god, or I don't know what it is. It just looks cool. And I'm very excited to see how this all plays out. And of course, uh, you've got Alan Tudyk coming back in yet another Disney film. I love that he keeps popping up. Jermaine Clement pops up in this one, which is going to be fantastic. Uh, you just got a really interesting cast. Plus, you've got some great music. Um, you know, you've got uh, Lin Manuel Miranda from Hamilton coming in with Opatia Fawaii, which uh, is uh, somebody I've never heard of, but I guess he's a uh, he is a Samoan. Uh, uh, performer and he uh, he and his uh, South Pacific fusion they do original contemporary Pacific music so um, I think that's going to be a, a nice blend I know that was a complaint with some people with Frozen that the music was it felt so modern Broadway as great as the music is it didn't feel like as completely a part of the world whereas here I feel like they've really kind of switched into something where they're really trying to feel like the music is a part of the world. So I'm super excited about that. And uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this one. What do you think? You know, I, that comment on the music is interesting. I think the the Frozen thing doesn't, I, it doesn't really hold as much water by comparison because Frozen was such a strangely invented fantasy world that really whatever music you throw at it, I think is going to sound funky. Um, maybe the Broadway struck people the wrong way. But looking at Moana, you have uh, a clearly defined place and a cultural rhythm from which to draw the music. And on that point, I totally agree. Uh, it, it looks like it, it's going to be right in line. I mean, you, you had me at Lin-Manuel. I mean, I, I'm a huge Hamilton fan, so uh, and, and I love the fact that he actually contributed a song to Star Wars, uh, The Force Awakens, so I'll pretty much see whatever, he's, uh, whatever he does. So I'm I'm most excited for that, but the the effects, the environmental effects in this film are really stunning in this in this trailer. The the lava monster, the water effects, they're just gorgeous. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. It looks like quite a spectacle. And I, I should say, since you brought up Star Wars, that uh Temuera Morrison, who uh played, of course, uh Django Fett in Star Wars episodes two and three, he is actually in this as well. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I didn't make that connection either. That's great. Yeah. So like I said, this thing is opening up, uh, you know, for the most part, it's it's kind of around that Thanksgiving time around the world. 
um, except for uh, Brazil, Turkey, Norway, Sweden, and Japan, who will have to wait till 2017 to see this. Listen to me, Andy. I've made a living out of being a failure, and you, sir, are not a failure. <laughs> They've got an idea. We can find bigger bugs to come here and fight. Now, why didn't I think of that? Oh, because it's suicide. What they needed was some help. <laughs> You're perfect. What they got... Popcorn! Snail popcorn! ...was a bunch of clowns. <laughs> We're losing the audience. Get out there now. They'll only laugh at me. That's because you're a clown! You parasite. Circus bugs! I thought you were warriors! Hey, cutie! Want a holiday with a real bug? Yeah, yeah. So, being a ladybug automatically makes me a girl! Christ! She's a guy! Come on, Francis. You're making the maggots cry. <laughs> Walt Disney Pictures presents... Desperate! I couldn't tell! A Pixar Animation Studios film. This was not supposed to happen! Squish him. Ah! Run for your life! An epic. I think I'm going to bet myself. Okay. Of miniature proportion. We don't serve grasshoppers for the colony and for oppressed bugs everywhere! Hello there, girly bug. Shoe fly, don't bother me. A Bug's Life. Coming to theaters this Thanksgiving. Hey, turn your butt off. A Bug's Life, Andy. John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton, they were still pretty new with this whole Pixar thing when they brought us A Bug's Life. Uh, it is funny how time fills the holes of technological progress because in my memory, this film looks as good as Moana does. And watching it again, even after it's only been probably five years since last time I watched it, uh, and I've seen it dozens upon dozens of times because this was the go-to nap movie for so many years for my young daughter. Uh, <laughs> but the the characters uh, have come a long way in the last 18 years. It's, it's beautiful. I still love it. But uh, it, it's amazing how much life they build into characters that are still fairly robotic. It's interesting. I, I can see what you're saying. And, and definitely the characters have come a long way. This is the second film that Pixar uh, you know, put out after Toy Story. And uh, there definitely is some, uh, some roughness around the edges. You watch the characters and uh, you can see just the way that their mouths are moving. It might not have been as perfected as it, uh, as it was for uh, later films. But I think that's just the evolution of it. And I don't know. I still find this uh, really just kind of mesmerizing to watch. And I really don't have any problems uh, with it, despite the fact that it may look a little more dated now. Well, it does It does look dated. And that's, you know, that is not a criticism, just a reality. The The bottom line is the, the script and the life that these actors bring into these characters and the overall structure of the film brings it such energy and such uh, just fluidity that that I'm able to move very quickly beyond uh, any shortcomings or, or datedness of the actual uh, character animation. It's just gorgeous. And one of the b- biggest surprises to me is as many times as my kids have seen this movie, they are howling throughout this film still to this day. Uh, they love it. We watched it this weekend and it it was it was amazing at the things they still find really funny. Yeah, I completely agree with that. My kids just, I mean, I would they would be howling about things. And, you know, I, I've got, I think, between the two of us, I've got the youngest child. And the things that, I mean, the thing that gave him the biggest laugh this time was when the two little ants who are being bullies to uh, Princess Dot, when um, she runs off across the tops of the 
kind of the the clovers Mm -hmm. and they start running after her and one of them kind of slips and falls between the leaves oh my goodness he could not stop laughing at that (laughs) (laughs) that's the funniest thing just the simple pratfall that's fantastic well you know and mine is the uh obviously oldest child i expected at uh, she's a teenager i expected her to look down on it with such disdain that she's so moved on from these kinds of films but she was she was on the edge of her seat with laughter. I mean, she really thinks it's hysterical. And now um, she can't help, she said. She she sort of cursed me. She said, I can't believe you told me why you're doing this movie on the show, because now all I can think of is Samurai. Uh, so so let's uh, let's let's bring it in. Why did we do this movie in the context of our series on the seven samurai family of films? Well, I think that was just it. I mean, we were trying to find films that kind of pulled from that uh, that whole uh, story and uh, created their own world with it. And it's interesting looking at the films that we ended up selecting. I feel like we ended up selecting more films that tied more directly to the Mag- uh, the Magnificent Seven, the original 1960 version, than perhaps films that were direct remakes of uh, Seven Samurai. Like, perhaps we could have done the, the Roger Corman uh, film as one of our Seven Samurai films instead of just so many Magnificent Seven films. But at the same time, they all do uh, kind of have that uh, same DNA, right? I mean, they yes. all kind of still have all those bits and pieces that came from Kurosawa's film. And uh, I, I think that what's uh, what I find so fascinating about going and looking at all of these is how um, I can enjoy them all in so many different ways as this story kind of gets retold. And this uh, it's interesting because it ends up becoming kind of a turning this the story that Kurosawa told so many years ago into almost a mythological trope, and we get to see it play out through these different worlds. And I, I don't know, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's a little bit unfair to call this one too much of a direct remake of, of or a, directly inspired by The Magnificent Seven as a surrogate for Seven Samurai. I think it was easier with The Magnificent Seven and, say, Three Amigos to talk about those in that context because there are horses involved. You know, it takes place across the, the desert. But this one, I think, like you said, it's got it's got so much of the DNA of you know of the the original samurai. I think it actually fits quite well. I, and I, I almost should say that um, this one is almost more of a of a retelling of Three Amigos. You know, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's almost been an interesting journey how we've gone. Uh, you know, Seven Samurai inspired Magnificent Seven, which inspired Three Amigos, which inspired Bugs Life. So it's it's a really interesting step by step. And there aren't all that many uh, critics who talk about this film as related genetically to Seven Samurai, right? You know, even the the um, you know the the lore of the filmmaking says that this was this was you know inspired more by Aesop's. The Ant and the Grasshopper than, you know, than any reference that I found to Samurai or Magnificent Seven. Well, it's really funny. I have listened to the, the directors and the filmmakers talking about it. I've read about it. And nowhere has uh, Three Amigos, the Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai, has any of that come up when talking about this story, which made me wonder. It's like, are they, did they realize it, but they're trying to just downplay it by not bringing it up? Like, I couldn't quite figure out exactly what it was because it's it's kind of obvious. It's, it's there, but yeah. none of them say anything about it. They talk about this original story, like you said, inspired by The Ant and the Grasshopper, which, you know, Walt Disney did a, a short film version of that back in the, I think, in the 30s. And I mean, that story, it's, you know, 
a grasshopper sits around and, and kind of just hangs out wanting to just enjoy life, trying to get one of these ants to kind of enjoy the, the lazy life with him. But then, of course, they're like, you know, oh, but when winter comes, you're going to be sorry. And, of course, winter comes and the grasshopper's sorry, and he tries to get the ants to uh, to give him some food. And they say, nope, the only people who get food here are the ones who work. And so they let the grasshopper uh, play music for them, and that's how he actually works to earn a living. And, I mean, it's a it's a nice little Aesop story. I'm not sure if Aesop's version ends quite in such a happy way. Yeah, somebody I got their legs it. pulled off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I like what they did here is that, you know, they ended up finding a different uh, path to take with this by making these grasshoppers actually just take the food. Um, however, it did kind of end up giving it this sense of these other kind of this other world. And it makes me wonder, you know, did Andrew Stanton or John Lasseter or any of these other people who contributed to the script, had they recently watched Three Amigos and might have thrown a little bit of that in there as they were right? reworking it? <laughs> and, and just it's it's completely conceivable that that groupthink would step in and they just collectively didn't catch it. You know, I mean, right. it's yeah. it's totally possible, but my goodness, is it ever there? The story uh, is by uh, John Laster, credited to John Laster, Andrew Stanton, and Joe Ramped. As the story goes, uh, they were uh, with Pete Doctor, their head story team, and they conceived of uh, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, and A Bug's Life all at the same lunch. Uh, that ended up being a very profitable lunch. And if you, according to the, uh, I believe it was the trailer for Wally, the initial trailer, I think Wally was conceived at that lunch meeting too. <laughs> That's so, yeah. awesome. Uh, <laughs> the screenplay actually is credited to Stanton, Don McEnery, and Bob Shaw. Uh, I think it's McEnry. McEnry? McEnery? McEnry? <laughs> we'll go with what you said. Uh, and so the the structure of the thing, you know, we get the uh, originally the the circus bugs were conceived as cheaters and they've come to the ants to trick them out of their goodies. Flick was originally the character Red the Red Ant and a member of the circus himself, uh, which actually fits more in line with the the Seven Samurai kind of magnificent seven trope uh, that uh, that our hero character is actually a member of the the you know rescuing party and not a member of the village as it stands. That's one place where the the theme diverges. We we also have my favorite thing though. We have the unrelated hero introduction. That I feel like now I've mentioned in all the other films, we have to talk about it. This was really pioneered <laughs> by the Seven Samurai. This is the introduction of of our hero uh, in the uh, act of doing something that is unrelated to the plot of the film itself. And here, I think we kind of have two, right? If we consider Flick as our hero of the film, uh, we have him with his invention, inventing the seed cutter. But we also then meet all of the circus bugs in the circus act, which is just a beautiful disaster. Um, so wherever you <laughs> fall on that, it's it is they're gorgeous and and beautifully structured elements. Flaming death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's great, and I do I do enjoy that uh, this is the first in the series where they've kind of shifted a little bit as far as who our protagonist is, and it, I, I found it interesting that. When I learned that they originally had it as one of the uh, the members of the circus, but then realized that you know these guys could leave at any time. What what stakes do they have in this village? And Andrew Stanton talked about how he kind of was stewing on this and said, "What if we're you know it, the, we're following a character from the village itself, not 
the circus. And that person can't leave the village. And he's a guy who has to figure out a way to actually save it. And that's kind of where they cut the red ant character and and kind of brought a lot of that into Flick and, and kind of created that. And this is really the first in the series where we really are focusing on one of the members of the village as the protagonist of the story. And I think it does work. I really enjoy how it works here. And it actually made me go back and go, well, why did the samurai have to stay and fight? Why did the cowboys have to stay and fight? Other than, I mean, you know, they're just all, you know, good guys, I guess, you know, they're there to kind of protect people. And, you know, I think that's that's really nice. And I like how it actually plays out in those stories. But with this one, I like that it actually is a member of the village. And I actually like that that it gives a moment for him to have this conversation with these circus bugs who end up having a turn because they're happy to leave. But because of this whole idea of and, and that fantastic sequence where they end up rescuing uh, Princess Dot from the bird and, you know, they hear this applause, it actually kind of turns into, hey, you know, this is a great way to kind of get that back in our lives that whole sense of audience appreciation exactly that they're fueled by ego ultimately (laughs) like they're fueled by one of the deadly sins and yet that actually drives them to do good and and i think that's really wonderful this film does open when we talk about these structural parallels to the magnificent seven and to seven samurai uh it does open with pillaging. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the grasshoppers raid the village, and that's how we open the film, where, where they're, the, the ants are trying so hard to, to uh, harvest as, enough food so that when the grasshoppers show up, they will have enough for their offering, and we get the pillaging. And it's fantastic. I think this may be the best of the pillaging that we have at the beginning of one of the films. I think that uh, the introduction of the grasshoppers as all the ants are cowering in the tunnels and uh, you get those those giant grasshopper feet just pounding through the ground as the grasshoppers descend and then the fantastic introduction of Hopper, of course. Um, I, I think he may rival Calvera. I think this may be our most uh, terrifying of the bandits that we've seen thus far. Oh, I think so too. And you know, to, to the point I was making earlier about the, the look of the, of the animation itself, one of the things that animation at this period did not do exceptionally well in in 3D animation was like softness, soft lines, rounded edges. Um, But what it does exceptionally well is hard lines, straight lines, and rough textures. And man, this was at the peak of designing evil characters like these grasshoppers. Like they just looked so good. It's, yes, uh, I think still... Some of the uh, the best groups of villains that we've seen in any of the Pixar films. They're totally. just so terrifying and so fun to look at and watch. I mean, they're great characters, just wonderfully conceived. There, There is some, you know, this is a story of mistaken identity. Uh, and, and once you start looking at it like that, you hear these lines, particularly listening to them in such close proximity to Three Amigos. It's hard not to see some direct... <laughs> parallels you know for example uh you know in three amigos we have uh infamous you know more than famous a mistaken understanding of of a particular word and then we have here we have you know dinner theater a talent scout you know all of these words that get (laughs) muddled up we have the the villain the villain says while watching the buffoons perform now that's funny and in Three Amigos, I like these guys. They're funny guys. I mean, it's <laughs> it's like <laughs> sequence for sequence. Uh, we we have uh, some some really direct similarities uh, that I, I just couldn't help but chuckle, given how they they don't want to acknowledge the parallel. 
But it's in the DNA. You can't argue. You can't argue, you can't argue, with, argue with DNA. It. That is the truth. Uh, we also have, we move into the perfect use of montage, right? That fits our Seven Samurai theme, where we usually have the prepping the city. Uh, we're sowing, sowing like the wind. Prepping the city? Prepping the village. You know, we prep the city. We prep the village. Uh, oh, in this prepping case, the, we're, the town, right? Here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're sowing, sowing like the wind. We're sowing all the suits. <laughs> or we're teaching people how to shoot. In this case, we're building a giant bird. But it works just perfectly uh, in this film. Absolutely. It's, it really is a great parallel all the way through. And, and, and uh, this film, I think uh, maybe more so than I, I feel like it was the Magnificent Seven that ended up feeling like it was giving the story a, a little bit of a short shrift. We, as, uh, as I recall, this one, it, it moves so quickly and everything feels very effortless. And that whole element of, of building the bird and teaching everybody, uh, you know, how to how to be part of the team and kind of do this whole thing. It just, it goes so quickly. And I just, I feel like these guys really tapped into a way to kind of move through the story in that direction very effectively. Talk to me about violence in the film. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I found it very interesting that this film uh, really seems to be um, pretty violent when you, when you look at it. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, Hopper and those, those three guys at the, uh, at the bar down in Mexico and potentially just crushing them with grain as he kind of takes the top of the grain bottle off and uh, potentially buries them in grain, just just completely killing them. Um, not to mention you have Flick just getting pounded by uh, by both Hopper and Thumper right toward the end of the film. And uh, boy, does he take a beating. I mean, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at all the Pixar films to see if there's any other character that ends up just getting as bruised and banged up as Flick does when he's kind of standing there in that last fight. Well, you do have and, the end of Toy Story, which is a pretty apt comparison uh, of the toys at the hands of the neighbor boy. Well, that is pretty uh, pretty horrifying. Yes, it is. But but it's not. I mean, not it's, like this. It's, yeah. it's horrifying. But it's like. But do you see? Like, I, I guess it's just. It was kind of shocking to me to see like the the bruises and the bangs up and everything that uh, that uh, Flick is uh, receiving at the end of uh, Hopper's uh, feet as he's kicking him around and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that just seems pretty shocking. Not to mention possibly the most gruesome death ever conceived in an animated film when <laughs> when. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I you know, it's funny. You see so many deaths in Disney films, and I'd have to look at the Pixar films, but so many films where you have uh, the bad guy falling to his death. It's a great way to have the end of your villain as they as they disappear in the mists, and you have no idea. But clearly, they're going to die. Um, but not so here. No, no. You get to have this giant bird, giant from our perspective with the ants, pick up Hopper and feed it to its three <laughs> little chicks, the most adorable, fluffy, yellow, beautiful little chicks that you've ever seen. It's just terrifying. It's all about perspective, Andy. It's <laughs> it really all about is. perspective. And, and you know, couple this with the, the rainstorm. You know, the rains come, and not only is it incredibly threatening when the ants realize that, A, they have just essentially won the, the day uh, in spite of all of the grasshopper violence, but when the rains come, just disaster rains how many ants lost their lives in this crushing storm uh as as the the giant droplets fall uh from the sky it was it was really interesting uh how they portrayed terror in this film and they did it in a way that actually ends up being i don't know fairly graceful 
it's graceful, but it's it's frightening. But it's done in a way where I don't think it's that scary. I, you know, I, I I mean, I think it's fun, kind of in its in its own way. But because it feels like it's a little bit of a different world, mm-hmm. it ends up not feeling quite as scary. I think. And the water drops. I mean, the water drops are like bombs as they fall. But I mean, the interesting thing is, as you kind of change perspective, and now we're down at the size of an ant. Water, the the viscosity of water is so different at that level, where he can pick up a dewdrop and make it into a little. Uh, you know, telescope and stuff like that. And when I love the bit in the circus after Flaming Death, when the bugs run up with little <laughs> drops of water and they throw it on P.T. Flea and it kind of engulfs him in this drop of water as he's floating around in there. But same thing during the thunderstorm. You have that moment where um, where Princess Ada and Flick are hit by a drop of rain and it kind of envelops them in the water on top of a leaf. And they it's like they're stuck in this drop until it falls off the leaf and hits the ground and they are able to break free. But yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. It's like how many ants got stuck in a drop of water that and just couldn't kind of get washed, out, washed away? Yeah. Uh, the the other thing, the way they characterized the the grasshoppers in particular was uh, gorgeous, and the sequence that hit me was um, a- around the when they come to reclaim at the end of the film, at the climax of the film, they come to reclaim the food after after having threatened the ants to to tell them to to harvest more, and we we have this gorgeous sunset, right? This beautiful pink sky, and then. Boom! The grasshoppers fly into frame uh, in in formation, and my daughter looked up at me and she said, "That was quite a jump scare." And I said, "Nice, <laughs> well done, well played." Absolutely, absolutely. Every time that kicks in, I totally expect the Wicked Witch of the West theme to kick in. It just seems like <laughs> it seems like it'd be so appropriate. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, uh, talking about the script and and all the different ways that they're working it here, I think something another. I mean, there's just so many things that Pixar does really well as they put their scripts together. Um, John Lasseter talks about this idea of sincerity through insincerity. And I think that's a, a really smart thing that they do in a lot of their films, not just here. But I, I love how it's done here. You've got moments that seem like they're bordering on potentially falling into just way too cutesy, way too schmaltzy, uh, just maudlin moments of dialogue that could potentially be bad. But what they do is they end up breaking that up by kind of introducing this insincerity in the comedy element. And they have that moment for an example that they talked about is the moment where where um, Flick is trying to teach Princess Dot about, you know, she's a little seed and she's going to grow up to be this great big tree and all that. And they're using this rock as a prop. And the whole thing keeps coming back to, but but it's just a rock. I know it's a rock. <laughs> Seed's Which a rock. Is, you got to work with me here. <laughs> work with me here. Uh, and that's, but it's great the way that they do that. They find ways to to play with the script. So you're it, it takes that insincerity and gives them so many more comedy opportunities as they write the script. And it's looped all through the script. And it's just, it's brilliant. Not to mention how good are these Pixar guys at the whole idea of setup and payoff. I mean, Ugh. I love what they do in all of their films. Uh, I love how even in Toy Story, they set up things in Toy Story 1 and 2 that they we get to continue saying payoffs in Toy Story 3. It's just so genius of them. Um, and here, it's again, going back to The Rock and the whole idea of this setup of this rock and how you introduce this whole concept of The Rock. And it turns into this beautiful, really touching payoff as Dot 
gives a gives a rock to Flick in the train. Not to mention a brilliant comedy payoff later when the bugs give this do- this this rock <laughs> to Princess Ada, and, and then you have the uh, which you know we have this whole other setup payoff as initially the circus bugs are like, "What's with the rock? I don't know. Must, <laughs> must be, be an, an ant, ant thing." thing. <laughs> and then you've got the ants. What's with the rock? I don't know. Must be a circus thing. It's just genius. And by threading all these setups and payoffs all through the script, it ends up just making the audience attach that much more to the script because you feel like you're connecting all these dots as you're watching it. And it just, it I don't know, I, I always find that uh, it makes the story really come to life that much more. Well, that makes me think of the the reveal of the seeds in the opening sequence, which I think there's a there is this beautiful visual uh, 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 structure just as we meet the seeds for the offering for the grasshoppers that works so well. It's we have first we have this close up of the seeds. We have a couple of established establishing shots of the seeds. We hear the grasshoppers are coming, so everybody goes into the into the ant hill, and Flick is left outside. He's got his crazy contraption and he needs to it's vibrating on his back and he needs to put it he put his seeds on the pile and get into the anthill and so he we see him take his contraption and he puts it down on the pile and we think great he made it but then it's vibrating and it's vibrating it's starting to shake the foundations of this thing and we think well okay so if the rock falls that's okay the grasshoppers can pick it up that's all right and then we see oh no they can't just pick it up because there's a cliff. And at this scale, that cliff is just terrifying. And then so we think, well, that's OK. If it's just falling down a cliff, these grasshoppers are big. Maybe they'll they'll just be able to to, to get it. And 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 then we see the, the seeds start to fall off, fall off. And we think, oh, no, they're going down the down the hill. But it's only at the very last second that they reveal a puddle the size of a lake that all of these seeds are falling into. And that sort of five shot sequence is so perfectly rendered in the structure of the script, and his character is so perfectly demonstrating the the uh, cascading levels of intensity that come with his own fear uh, about being shamed and about the grasshoppers and all of these things. That I mean, it was just my the whole family was in stitches as this was unveiled. It's perfect slapstick. They're they're really good at it. Um, not just the uh, the writers putting the script to, together to do this, but the directors. I mean, John Lasseter, who brought us Pixar and who has brought us some of these great films, and Andrew Stanton. I mean, they know how to connect all of this as they're telling a story. They do a fantastic job here. And you know this because Andrew Stanton is behind John Carter. <laughs> Absolutely. He knows his action. <laughs> One of us is speaking in air quotes. Uh, no, I actually, I, I didn't love John Carter, but I actually found it to be um, more entertaining than uh, people seemed to find it. I actually had a, <laughs> a pretty good time watching John Carter, even if it's not a story that I, I mean, I never knew the story. I never really connected uh, with that whole thing, um, but I actually found it to be very well made and a relatively fun time. So there. Rock's a movie, Andy. Rock's a movie. You got to work with me here. <laughs> first shot last shot this is a pairing of shots that not only are thematically relevant but they are uh, structurally critical well spoken thank you sir first shot yeah the first shot um, we start in a you know essentially in a human size scale as we look at this beautiful well we're in a we're looking at a puddle we see a leaf land on the puddle, and then we tilt up, and we see a, just a beautiful landscape, a tree, a little creek kind of around it and everything. And then we 
pretty much kind of fly through the air all the way until it's almost like we're shrinking as we're flying until we get to the point where we're down at the level of the grass below this tree. And we see we're in Ant Island now and we have kind of moved into the world of bug scale, so to speak. And we're down right among the grass. And then we see a little ant climb up right in front of us, picks a little seed out of it. And then we see, then through all through the background, we see all these ants climbing up. So it's a, it's an incredible shot to really set up this whole sense of scale and this world that we have now entered. And it also sets up the story because now we have this plot element that, we, that has been added, the collection of food in order to feed the grasshoppers. And then our last shot pairs perfectly with that because it's the same shot in reverse. But now the story has been resolved. There is much celebration and chaos. They are shooting off seed fireworks in the air as the circus pulls away. We're in front of the circus looking back on Ant Island, and we are resetting the scale to human. As we pull back, we are sort of growing, and Ant Island becomes, again, just another uh, sort of plateau of grass with a beautiful now color, uh, a colorful tree as the seasons have changed, the rains have come, and uh, and color and life have sort of returned to the island. Yeah, it's the death and rebirth sort of theme of everything, right? That's right. That's right. And I think that, you know, it, it is a beautiful pairing for that reason, sort of symbolically. But as you said with the first shot and I with the last shot, it is structurally relevant because we need something to reset our expectations of physical size and space. And I think it it works so well. It sets up the plot, and like you said, it sets up the scale. And, uh, you know, the, the tagline, which you, you read at the beginning of this, you know, an, an epic of miniature pr- proportions or whatever it was. So good. It's I mean, that really is exactly what we're we're getting here. You know, it's yeah. it's taking us into this, this world that is super small, but we're getting this great big story in it. Absolutely. Uh, the cast is full of, I mean, chock full, stuffed full. It is a cornucopia of like musty TV actors. Uh, geez, Dave Foley. Uh, well, specifically the TV guys. I mean, Dave Foley, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Phyllis Diller, Richard Kind, David Hyde Pierce. And now, I mean, I guess Dennis Leary, he wasn't quite the TV guy right. that he is uh, now, but just so many great names, not to mention all the other key names, Kevin Spacey, Hayden Panettiere, who I guess ended up having a TV career. Quite, quite a, a TV career, yeah. Uh, Joe Ranft, uh, Jonathan Harris, Madeline Kahn, Bonnie Hunt, Michael McShane, John Ratzenberger, Brad Garrett, Roddy McDowell. I mean, seriously, Edie McClurg, David Osman, and uh, of course we have some cameos by John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton. I love their cameos. That's why I put them in there. <laughs> There's like they're buried in the cast list, but they were Bug Zapper, Bugs One and Two. <laughs> It's so, it's so beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> oh, they're the best. That's uh, great. So, you know, in terms of the key cast members, they're all terrific. I mean, there isn't a single voice actor in here that delivers a performance that doesn't absolutely ratchet this film up a notch for me. But the the key characters, Dave Foley, obviously, is uh, is just perfect as Flick. That sincerity, the innocence, the the positive positivity that just erupts every time he speaks. It's just perfect. Not to mention the sense of owning his world without realizing how he's seen by everybody else. I think Dave Foley pulls that off so well. Just that kind of that blindness he has to the fact that everybody thinks he's just a buffoon. Yeah, and I love that moment when he kind of 
crosses the hill. He's like, I'm off, everybody. And he crosses over the hill and everybody, and he just hears this eruption of applause and he just kind of takes a breath of pride. Like, yes, that's for me. And of course, you know, we know as the audience that these guys are just thrilled that he's finally gone. <laughs> he's, he is, he's a character that is, is just seizing hope from the jaws of hopelessness. And, and that is opposite to the character he was playing at the time on news radio, which was exactly seizing hopelessness from the jaws of hope. He, everything around him was really uh, probably better than it, it should have been and he was always pretty miserable uh and and what a great character he was obviously comes from kids in the hall uh which was fantastic uh sketch comedy if you are if you are too young to have ever seen or heard of kids in the hall you got to go check out uh, dave foley on youtube and he was originally they brought him in to read for a different part um, one of the smaller parts, but I think they just they clicked so well that uh, they ended up uh, offering him the lead, which I think is fantastic. Um, Dave Foley, I ended up working with him on uh, Nether Beast Incorporated, which was uh, it was such a treat to work with him. He's such a friendly guy, and one of the things that I love about him is just uh, just this this sense of comedy and this improv that he has, and that whole thing that he's always looking for ways to to kind of bring a little bit more to roles and and just hearing these guys talk about he would kind of throw some things in as little improv bits i'm like yep that sounds exactly right uh he's just he's so uh great uh with doing that you know another interesting thing about dave foley is i found this uh, a really interesting tidbit about kind of the after um the afterworld of uh bug's life and how the whole thing has uh played out but it was i think it was when uh, the Incredibles came out. It said at the beginning of the trailer, it said, from the makers of Toy Story, Monsters Incorporated, and Finding Nemo. And all of the people who worked on A Bug's Life were like, what? Why didn't you put Bug's Life in there? And so they started this kind of unofficial campaign of like this Bug's Life appreciation that turned into this. You know how, I mean, everybody hears stories about the office at Pixar and how everybody's like, you know, it's like games all the time. And they're all, you know, flying uh, paper airplanes around and racing around on scooters and all sorts of insane games or whatnot. So, of course, they have, you know, this Bug's Life appreciation thing that turns into this elaborate thing that goes on all week, culminating at the end of the week of an actual read through of the script and they got Dave Foley on the phone to re recreate his role as Flick and so they did the whole script and it sounded like this has turned into an annual event that they do every year now since then which I was like with that's Dave just... Foley with I, I I'm guessing at this point it's probably they try to get maybe whoever they can I I it sounds I, I I'd like to think that Dave Foley comes back every year to do I would like to think that Flick. too yeah, he just seems like the guy who would do it. So, awesome. uh, But yeah, he's perfect as Flick. Opposite uh, Dave Foley, we have Kevin Spacey as Hopper. This was, He is the nemesis. Originally supposed to be Robert De Niro and a, a list of other people, but uh, who turned it down. I'm so glad they did. I loved reading that uh, they they asked De Niro multiple times. And yeah. He turned it down multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I really didn't want to be in part of that one, apparently. Truly. So. <laughs> uh, but yes, I completely agree. Thank goodness that uh, Spacey said yes, because he's so good as Hopper. This, I mean, he's done so many great roles, but I still think Hopper may be one of my favorites that he's performed. Uh, other favorites uh, in this um, in this film? 
you know, I I uh, I love that Richard Kind uh, plays Molt. I think that he's just hilarious as this character. Um, you know, this this bumbling brother. I think it was smart to make him a brother of uh, of Hopper, so that Hopper didn't just kill him. Because otherwise, I don't think Hopper would have had this guy around. Well, and he has such an identifiable voice. I mean, I think at this point he was he was uh, a regular on Mad About You, uh, and it was just perfect for the role i mean you just he is his voices you just you just can't duplicate it well and he's one of those guys like uh like a number of these people who has come back uh, a number of times for other uh films with these guys i mean he was in cars cars 2 toy story 3 and of course he was bing bong in inside out that's right my my daughter flipped out when i told her that she's (laughs) like you're right oh my you can't believe it you're right she was so excited that he was bing bong (laughs) Uh, Dennis Leary is uh, plays a, a perfect rendition as the Ladybug Francis, and I think that's just a, his voice is so counter to the character that it makes that that uh, um, uh, that contrast is is uh, really what stands out. Yeah, I mean, God, the circus bugs are—it's just the best group of voices to play yeah. this. I mean, Jonathan Harris is—you know—he's such a, a fantastic voice and such a uh, a great history with all the stuff that he's worked on. But um, I, I love his voice. He's got that great kind of old-timey sort of voice that he just kind of rings and you just hear the way he's speaking and everything. And, and uh, you know, just the way that he kind of comes in and, and uh, does his, uh, oh, it's time again to save the day, you know, <laughs> just all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, geez, he, talk about a, a guy who's been around. I mean, he had been on TV forever. There's so much stuff that he worked on. And, of course, uh, gosh, what is the show that I'm blanking on that he worked on? Lost in space. He yeah, was the lost in space. Uh, lost in the space. Doctor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, sadly, this was Roddy McDowell's last movie. Uh, played Mister Soil in this one, and a- another iconic voice. He's so good, and you know the whole thing with with Mister Soil, and you know he had, uh, you know he played last season. He was in Picnic, and it was so good. <laughs> so all that it just fit so well <laughs> for Roddy McDowell. I just love him, and you know Edie McClurg. I mean, she's just always a hoot. She just makes me laugh in everything she does, whether it's uh, something like uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles or something like Dr. Flora here. And, of course, then there's uh, David Osman from the Firesign Theater. We're both big fans. Big fans. Yeah, I'm yeah. Actually, I'm stunned that I didn't see that myself, Andy. That was a good catch. Yeah, pretty fun. Uh, I love it. The other sad loss, oh, I'm going to say a sadder loss uh, in this film is the loss of Joe Rampt. The sadder loss. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I mean, you know, Ron McDowell was an old guy. Yes. It's not like he, it, yeah, I mean, he just, he expired. I actually don't remember how Roddy McDowell actually died. He may end, have ended up in like a combine. <laughs> but my expectation is that he died. For for fact checking, I should look that up. While you're talking about Joe Rampt, I need to make sure Roddy McDowell didn't die in a combine. Jeez. You're horrible. You're going to be really yes. embarrassed. If he died in if, a combine. If he did die in a combine. He retired to a farm life where, <laughs> Which sadly, turned out to be his last most prophetic mistake. No, yeah, Joe Ranft, uh, I mean, fantastic. I mean, he was, you know, we talked about him in story. He was a co-story um, writer for this. And he was also the story supervisor. He was kind of a big Pixar guy. And, uh, of course, he lent his voice to Heimlich, although they auditioned quite an, um, a number of other people. And they almost had somebody picked... But Joe had kind of done the voice for all of the uh, the 
temp work that they had been doing as they were gearing up. And his voice was just so much funnier. Everybody laughed so much more with what he was uh, bringing to the performance. And truly, Heimlich the Caterpillar is just one of the great (laughs) characters in Pixar history. Possibly my favorite here. Although Tuck and Roll are awfully close. I love all of those. Um, I just, I, Tuck and Roll, I had little, uh, little, uh, you know, figures of them because, man, those guys just cracked me up. Just their nonsense talk all three of them i think are just perfect but yeah joe ranft he ended up uh lending his uh voice to quite a lot of uh the projects that uh that these guys had i mean he was lending the binoculars in toy story i mean he uh was wheezy the penguin he uh had just random voices in monsters inc he was jacques in finding nemo um and uh he was a few voices in cars and then unfortunately in 2005 he did pass away he went to school with Lasseter and Brad Bird. Like, he was a big Pixar guy. I mean, I don't think you can kind of overstate that. Uh, and how he died is really the saddest part, right? I mean, he drove off a cliff. A buddy of his was driving his car and, and drove off a cliff uh, on Highway 1. And, and so he died. He was killed instantly in the Navarro River, uh, which is it really terrible. Like, really terrible. 45 years old. That's just crushing. Some some of those uh, yeah some of those roads uh, those oh, drops off the yeah. water pretty no they're, they're not they shouldn't be driven by cars only drones yeah. drone traffic only and uh, I just a real time follow up uh, Roddy McDowell was seventy he died sadly of lung cancer in Studio City in his home not <laughs> living the farm life. Hmm. Let's talk about getting how it got made <laughs> shall we? There's a little bit. <laughs> There's a little bit of controversy, yes? Yes, there was. This was at that period in time where uh, there was this uh, kind of rift in Disney and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg had left and, you know, he ended up forming DreamWorks with uh, Spielberg and Geffen. Then it's just like all of a sudden there was all this this kind of fighting between the two and he wanted to be better and they, they had acquired uh, uh, Pacific Data Images or PDI to kind of do their computer animation because, of course, Katzenberg's like, well, I'm going to prove that I can, I can do uh, better out here than you guys. And so they started developing the animation division. And of course, they had Prince of Egypt uh, in the hopper ready to get made. But then they started pushing Ants, this other Ant film. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole history of it because, boy, is it. I mean, that could take up an entire show to talk about <laughs> that. I think that's the I think that's the longest section in all of the about move about this movie like oh, research yeah. sites. This is the longest thing. They, uh, yeah, just anyone who's really interested just can can Google, um, you know, ants versus a bug's life and find out all sorts <laughs> or, of interesting information. Or uh, go, go ahead and Google, nobody likes Katzenberg. That, that'll get you right to it. <laughs> But yeah, it was uh, it was this big thing, and and uh, there were f- angry phone calls between Lassiter and Katzenberg, and then between Katzenberg and Steve Jobs, who was kind of you know the the guy behind Pixar, and all of this stuff culminated in um, this battle of these ant movies in 1998 because Katzenberg moved the opening of Ants, which was their animated their CGI ant movie, from the spring of '99 to October '98 to compete with A Bug's Life, and it was just this this big to do and everybody was talking about it and of course they both got released and people kind of enjoyed both of them i mean they both had different things going for them i mean i would definitely prefer to watch a bug's life over uh over ants but i i have friends who prefer kind of the more adult humor a little bit more of that kind of uh that woody allen wit that you have in ants 
Um, and, you know, some people are like, oh, the ants in A Bug's Life are too cutesy. I like the ants in Ants because they're much more realistic looking. But, you know, they're all computer talking ants. So. <laughs> really, they're all computer talking. The problem with, with the ants is that it's about, it's a Woody Allen movie first and foremost, right? Just the act of putting Woody Allen in it makes it a, oh my goodness, of course the ant has to go into therapy movie. <laughs> and and there's just, I, I just didn't connect with that. And and so it's definitely not, we have it, it's not a film that ever really gets into rotation. No, it's, it's an interesting one to look at. It's not one I've returned to. And actually, in the end, it ended up, uh, I mean, really, you know, box office speaks and it didn't end up making as much at the box office as Bugs Life did. Let's buzz through some of the technology that uh, hit this film. First of all, it was uh, aspect ratio. That's a big deal. Yeah, this was the first, uh, I mean, first computer animated film with a 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio, uh, the real widescreen. Um, I don't know if that's saying a whole lot since it was only the second computer animated film made, <laughs> <laughs> but but it still is a, a you know a really interesting bit of tech uh, you know just fascinating technology that these guys really wanted to go to the length to make a real widescreen movie because of these landscapes and everything, and then of course once they got into it they realized crap now we have to fill that frame and we yeah. have to create all these extra <laughs> characters to you know do all this. Um, but interesting other things that kind of went along with this is this ended up being the very first movie to be transferred directly to DVD from its digital source. Because it was all made in a computer, they could just make it and you kind of port the whole thing right on over to DVD and all the other digital things like Blu-ray and streaming and all that. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's really crisp and clean. Also, I found this really fascinating because at the time this came out on DVD, Four three aspect ratio TVs were still the norm. It hadn't everybody hadn't really converted to those widescreen televisions. And when they released the DVD, they gave you two options where you could actually watch it in the wide aspect ratio with letterbox, or you could watch the four by three version. And what they did is they actually moved all the characters in the frame to fit the four by three aspect ratio. So they actually reformatted the entire look of the film to fit that four by three frame. And it's important that we note this is we're not talking about pan and scan. They didn't move the no. frame. They moved the the characters. Right, within each of the scenes, they actually squeeze them all into that uh, four by three aspect ratio. This is why nobody shoots on film anymore, people. <laughs> I start moving actors around. It's this all is of when life. Lucas. This is when Lucas got the idea to to replace Jabba the Hutt in the hangar of the Millennium Falcon and make Han Solo step on his tail. <laughs> so disaster can can come from these things too. But still, uh, cinematography. Uh, one of the things they, one of the tricks they used to get everybody thinking at bug scale was they they devised a miniature camera and put it on small small wheels and drug it around a garden so that everybody could see what it's like on video to uh to live uh, in the grass. I like that. The idea of a bug cam. It's it's great. I mean, being able to see like as you're looking up under all the grass how you can see kind of through the different leaves and you get that translucence and everything and I, and there are some shots in here. There's a shot where they're they're hiking through the clover forest and you just have that kind of glowing light coming through the tops of the leaves. Oh, it's just gorgeous. You know, for me, the the real highlight scene is the sequence of Flick boarding the dandelion when he climbs into the center of the dandelion. Uh, all of the harshness that comes from my critique of the animation goes away. It just evaporates. It is one of the most beautiful single frames of film that, that, uh, that comes from this film for me. 
that whole bit I actually really love yeah. because you get that. I, I feel it really gives a good sense of scale because you get that moment where, uh, and this, you know, they, they were designing everything at bug scale, but it, largely inspiring by a human world. And when they come up, when, when Flick first comes up to the edge of the, of the, the essentially cliff down into the dry riverbed, um, they, they were inspired by the Grand Canyon and just that sense of scale you have when you go stand on the lip of the canyon and you're just, you have this vast, you know, emptiness in front of you. And you really get, I find, I really get a sense of that as I, as Flick is kind of looking out over this huge hole in front of him and, and as he kind of flies across it on the, the little dandelion uh, seed. I just, it is just so beautiful. The production design, uh, all of this world, I mean, it was done so nicely. I love also how when he goes to Bug City, you get this sense of Times Square. And actually, they, they patterned it largely after Times Square and just the whole design of it. So going so far as to um, where when they pass by kind of the Broadway stretch, the Lion King logo is on some, you know, I don't know, some box of crackers or something, whatever it is that, you know, the bug world has has incorporated. Um, you actually have the Lion King logo in the same place. It's just like, uh, it's so fascinating that they really? went to the, that that uh, level. Oh, really thorough. Um, the 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 trick with the character design um, around the ants versus the grasshoppers, I think, is really interesting too. You know, they made a decision. You already mentioned talking about ants; they're more realistic. They they also have more limbs in ants, and here they design them much more akin to humans, a, a much more approachable two legs, two arms, uh, and and removing the extra set of arms. Uh, allows us to develop uh, an affinity to these characters that we don't get with the grasshoppers on on you know f- first and foremost they're ugly hideous creatures but secondarily they also have the extra set of arms that are always kind of dangling there uh if they're not being used they're inert but you know that as soon as they come to life they're going to do something gross <laughs> and so it makes them that much more of an a, a, a sort of evil character and i think that's an interesting choice yeah it is and, and we talked about it with ants and kind of the difference in the two and how they they kind of can end up uh having just a different sense of what the world is that they're creating but here uh, you know despite any complaints that people had i just love these bugs i do find that they're really fun to connect to i enjoy this kind of like this purple humanoid ants that we have here and you know i did i should have looked uh before we started the recording you know the whole pixar theory how they're all from one universe yeah i should have looked to see how a bug's life tied into this because i'd be curious to see how like where does a bug's life fit into it you know are they talking ants with four legs because of some nuclear armageddon that happened at some point (laughs) like i'm really curious now i need to go back and look at that uh that fan theory yeah that's right put out there um, we've already talked about the rain. Going into the world of animation and CG, there are things that are really uh, easier to do and things that are a lot harder to do. And and all of this kind of this, uh, when you talk to your technical director and you say, hey, we're going to have rain and we're going to have fire, we're going to have smoke and all of these sorts of things that they have to figure out, okay, well, now we have to create these effects. How are we going to do it? And they said, there's no way we're going to be able to create the rain, but somehow they did manage to pull it off. But yeah, it's it's difficult stuff to create. And uh, the, the effects team, I can only imagine the amount of work they had to put in here. I mean, there's a different uh, level of work that they have to do in a, in a hand-drawn animation, sort of, as far as what the effects team has to do, because that's its own set of difficult uh, tasks. But here, I, I can only imagine how hard it is to create very realistic 
raindrops and very realistic uh, fire and smoke and all of that to uh, to make it work. But, you know, they do a great job here, and it all looks beautiful. Well, it, in terms of the history of the technology, I like this bit. So the ants were all using very similar technologies, all the a particle generator. The rain is all done with particle generator. The seeds are done like the fireworks seeds. It's all through this particle generator, uh, including the ants when in crowds. And that was the thing that they were super concerned about. You already mentioned they're going to have to fill these frames, these giant, beautiful 2.35 to 1 frames. Well, they did it with these giant particle generated ants uh, that they then augmented and gave some intelligence so that they would be moving. They would They would specifically character animate you know, two to three characters on screen at a time, but the crowds would all be doing this sort of programmatic movement. And the particle generator was done by the same guy who did the Genesis effect in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And uh, as the, the particle generator takes over that computer animation of the Genesis planet, he is still, he was at Lucasfilm at the time when they spun off that team and it became Pixar. He went with them. He is still there. Bill Reeves... He is still programming. He actually did the water effects in Finding Dory. I think that's cool. That is crazy. That is a career, that guy. He contributing to uh, the technology behind this film is great. And if you want to see a great, really, really great, although fairly deep dive into creating a particle generator, uh, head over to Khan Academy. Pixar has released a like 28-part uh, lesson at Khan Academy on, on using and creating effects with particle generators. And Bill Reeves is in it. Really? Yeah. Wow, that yeah. is cool. It's great. One other thing that I wanted to throw in there that I thought was just fascinating is that these guys decided to throw in some outtakes during the end credits. Which is, I just think, just brilliant. I mean, we've seen it in comedy movies before, and even you know, you know, movies like Being There with those outtakes, which you know may have seemed like they were pulling us out of the actual story a little bit. But you know, outtakes during credits—it's something that happens sometimes, and and it's they're always fun to watch because you get to see people kind of falling apart, and you really get a sense of just the real world of the these actors trying to get these movies made. What was so brilliant about doing outtakes for an animated film, though, is this sense that, you know, they liked this whole idea of kind of confusing people into kind of, you know, misunderstanding how these things get made in the first place, where it's like, it's almost like you're watching them filming a movie and you see the flubs and all that sort of stuff. And it's so much fun. And but you when you realize what it is, I mean, they actually had to write all of these outtakes and have the actors kind of do it all. And I just think that's genius that they ended up doing that. And they've done it a number of other times. Me too. I think it's really classy. Uh, the film was edited by Lee Unkrich. And I bring him up not just to say that the film is edited smartly, but the fact that he as an editor moved from uh, he, he had started uh, as an editor on Toy Story with Pixar, uh, obviously had some uh, projects before Pixar, but then he moved to A Bug's Life and then went to co-director and editor on Toy Story 2, co-director on Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo, additional editor on Cars and Ratatouille, and director of Toy Story 3, uh, before he moved on to executive producer for Monsters University and the Good Doc, Good Dinosaur, um, he is part of the uh, a key part of the Pixar team that brings these stories together and is is a fantastic talent um, in his own right. Yeah, I think you find a lot of the people um, who really are proving their talent in the world of Pixar. It's very easy for them to move up and, yeah. and to kind of uh, 
end up helming some of these great projects. Well, and that's one of the neat things. I mean, it almost feels like Pixar is kind of a, a, a relic of a studio system. You know, you get in there and you make movies with this, you know, and, and there aren't a whole lot of people who come in and out and, and don't stick with the company. And, uh, you know, I think Brad Bird is one of the notable examples of, of one who comes in, sort of does a movie on contract and then goes, goes and does his own thing. But, um, but most of the people who are ahead of, story over there tend to stay with it um gary rydstrom speaking of uh kind of some of the post-production uh he does the sound here and boy i you know talk about a key element in animated films and just how essential it is to give really strong sound effects to your world i mean you need to you're designing an entire world and and yes you have the the uh, the visuals that they're creating with the animation but i mean there's no sound with that you're not recording anything so they have to kind of come up with this entire thing and listening to him talk about the way that he came up with all the different wings that the sounds that all the different bugs wings uh had as elements um it was just fascinating how he would incorporate like for for dim how he would incorporate uh helicopter sounds and how i think it was um, I can't remember which one um, he would incorporate, like bubble wrap, wrap flapping against itself, and and I think one of them he was doing, you know, he was flapping his cheeks to to kind of make like kind of a wet sound, and and so many different ways to create all these different sounds, and it's just it's so interesting. Not to mention like the grasshoppers, how he incorporated like motorcycle uh, kind of groups of motorcycles riding together and starting together, and it's it's fun, and I it's I think that in the world of sound you get to do some really interesting things to kind of build that world. And I think Gary Rydstrom, who, I mean, he has time and time again in his career proven himself uh, just a a wonderful key element to uh, productions, does an amazing job here. Academy Award winner for Best Sound and Sound Effects Editing behind Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Jurassic Park, Titanic, and Saving Private Ryan. Those are just the ones he won for. Uh, (laughs) He is an incredibly talented sound guy. Randy Newman did the music... Oh, Randy again. Good old Randy. This is like a Randy Newman miniseries. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> uh, and, you know, his song is really cute. I enjoy his song. I have actually been listening to the soundtrack uh, for this all week. And it's just, it's fun music. It's very light and it's very, um, I don't know, Just it just moves along. It's just easy to listen to. I think he did a great job here. And jumping to awards, he's the only one to actually have uh, gotten an Oscar nomination out of this film. At the time, there was no Best Animated Film category. That didn't happen until a few years later. But he got an Oscar nomination for Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. Um, you know, for his music, and I thought that was great. Yeah. And of course, he ended up losing to Shakespeare in Love, which I think uh, is is probably the right decision uh, for the Academy. But I still do enjoy his music quite a bit. Why uh, hasn't Pixar done a sequel to this yet? They just I they have... haven't finished going back to the well for Cars and Toy Story. I guess so, you know, or or the Monsters universe. Yeah, right. I have never seen them talk about going back to this, and maybe it's because you know the the story is complete. I mean. You could argue that with all of the other ones, too. But, uh, yeah, for this one, I just find it interesting that it was never... Uh, I have never heard discussion of a sequel to this one. It's part of our Seven Samurai series uh, that I guess means technically it's sort of been remade. It being a Disney movie, it may not uh, be getting a sequel or anything, but it had its video game. And, of course, if you go to uh, the uh, you know Disneyland, you can, of course, go to... 
the bug land, which is uh, a lot of fun as you kind of are writing everything. And it's all, you know, your, your bug size and everything is huge. And it's, it's fun that they have that land there. And uh, my kids love it. It's just a great place to go hang out. The video game was pretty terrible. Was it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I never played it. It was, it was pretty bad. It, it was one of the, it was Nintendo 64. Uh, and so it's, it's tough to go backwards. It wasn't E.T. bad, though, was it? No, it was not. It was not buried in the desert bad. Uh, anyway, how did it do? Uh, this movie did well. I mean, and like I said, it did better than Ants did. Uh, this movie was released November 20th, 1998. So again, uh, just like Moana, they love uh, pushing these movies out at Thanksgiving. Um, I found a couple things as far as the production budget. I found one that said $45 million, another that said $120 million. My hunch is, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I'm going to guess that it was $45 million for the production budget, which left another $75 million for the prints and advertising, making a total budget of $120 million. That's a, just a hunch. I am hoping is right since I'm advertising here. But <laughs> that gave an adjusted total uh, budget of $171 million. Uh, in today's dollars, this film ended up making here in the U.S. 100, almost 163 million, and internationally about 200.6 million. So all told, this film made a good chunk of money, having an adjusted profit per finished minute of 3.6 million. That's pretty good. Puts it in the top 20 on our list. Yeah, not bad, Lassiter and Stanton. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you will find our list of all the movies that we have talked about on this film. They have all been meticulously ranked filmo a filmo, which is what we shall do tonight. How if you're on a desert island and all you had was this movie and one other, which would you watch? First up, we have a bug's life or hot fuzz. Wasn't expecting that to be the no, first one. No, that is a new. That's we haven't talked about that in forever. Yeah, and it kind of throws me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, dang it. Hot Fuzz is a pretty important movie. Yes, it is. I really For do us. enjoy Hot Fuzz quite a bit. Um, dang it. You sure you sure want A Bug's Life to be uh, in the top half, don't you? I know. That's you the really thing. You really do. But it's, it's up against Hot Fuzz, which is, you know, one of my favorites. So, Are you going to game the flick chart, Andy? <sighs> I am going to say... I'm going to say Hot Fuzz. I'm going to say Hot Fuzz, too. All right. That doesn't mean I don't love a bug's life. It is what it is. It's out <laughs> it there. Is it it is. is what it is. Curse you for the chart. <laughs> oh, man. I was not expecting Hot Fuzz to be a, a, a brother block. I know, man. right? How do you open with a hate crime? Oh, How geez. do you do that? All right. A bug's life or the host. A bug's I know life. you liked the host. No, no, no. A lot I'm going to choose a bug's life. Okay, all right, well, good. We're both bugs yeah. life on that one. All right, a bug's life or the deer hunter. Talk about a completely <laughs> oh different tone. <laughs> I, I can say uh, without qualification, I would watch a bug's life before the deer hunter. Yeah, I mean, a bug's life. Uh, I mean, I would too. I mean, I really do think the deer hunter is a really solid film. But absolutely, uh, boy, is it a it's a tough one. So yeah, bug's life for me. Okay, Bugs Life or Big Fish, one of your favorites, but uh, you know how I feel. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say Bugs Life. I'm going to say Bugs Life. What? Yeah. Are you really? I am. I, I mean, I should just take it. <laughs> I know. If you want to fight about it, I can. <laughs> nope. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I just 
was totally not expecting that. All right, A Bug's Life or The Born Supremacy? Um, hmm. I may go born here. Yeah, I'm going born. I, it was, uh, was the order again? Identity, supremacy, was supremacy yes, this second? this is the second one, and then ultimatum is third. This is good. Got right. Pam Landy. Yeah, Pam Landy. All right, Pam Landy. <laughs> All right. A Bug's Life or Panic Room. A little David Fincher thrown into the mix. I'm going to say Panic Room. It does have that uh, camera through the uh, teacup. Pregnant Jodie Foster running around. That's right. All right. Take it. Take it, Panic Room. <laughs> okay. A Bug's Life or The Professional. Oh. I, this is like so many films that we haven't uh, seen on here in a long time. Wow. Something got shaken loose. I, uh, I'm kind of surprised, but I actually am going to say uh, Leon, The Professional. Yeah, I'll say The Professional. Considering a my fantastic uh, movie. overall disdain for Luke Besson, yeah. uh, that movie is really good. Yeah. Um, a Bug's Life or The Night of the Hunter. Oh, wow. Love and hate, Andy. That's the that represents all of our evening. I yes, absolutely, and certainly here on Flick Chart, I have to say the Night of the Hunter. Yeah, there it is, a Bug's Life one forty nine. That that's feels really like a flick low. Chart hate crime. That is a Flick Chart hate crime. Flick Especially when three spoken. amigos ended up so high. I know, which is not a Flick Chart hate crime. This but one, still. this one definitely suffers as a result of some of these pairings. I think early on yes it does yes it does what is it for your uh, letterbox this this is a film that i feel like uh over time has kind of just increased in my like uh i just i really just man did i love it this time i give it a solid four out of five me too four out of five lock it in excellent four out of five both of us so this is the this was the penultimate film in our seven samurai family series that gives us only one more film if you know what penultimate means (laughs) (laughs) where do we go from here andrew we are going to be wrapping up the series with the antoine fuqua remake of the magnificent seven with uh, of course denzel washington and chris pratt i'm looking forward to it I am too. I'm very curious to see uh, their take on that story, and I'm curious to see how much of it actually ties into all of these different elements we've been talking about, the the thread of DNA running through them. I'm really curious to kind of see um, where it lands with all of this. You know what? I'll bet it it is literally a direct shot-for-shot remake of A Bug's Life with cowboy hats. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so which circus bug is Denzel? That's right. <laughs> well, he's dim. He's dim, of course. He's just stomping around. Uh, oh, that's so funny. Uh, good. Well, I'm excited for it. That's next week, uh, opening weekend. Get your ticket. Go Fandango, people. Don't miss it. There you go. I'm going to go to bed. All right. Well, I'm off to join the circus. Amazon giveth, Andy.
as Amazon always doeth. Oh, dear. There are some people who are upset about this movie. A lot of comments overall for this one. A lot of love, and there's definitely a good handful of uh, hate. <laughs> I, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got one from 2006. One star out of five. It's titled Fear, Bullies, Aggression, and Ugly Stereotypes, A Toxic Brew for Kids. This is one of the worst films for kids I have ever seen with my four-year-old son. It is built around fear, bullies, aggression, and ugly stereotypes. This film is a bonanza for therapists and sociologists, and it goes a long way toward explaining some of the pathologies of this society. How about a movie that lets kids be kids instead of onslaught of cheap sentiments and terror? The calculated story uses every trick to scare kids. The limited imagination of the story writers is particularly insulting. Is everything just about good and evil and the fight for survival for young kids? In many ways, this film is a throwback to Cold War films such as Red Dawn, in which school kids fought a Soviet invasion. No kidding! Is A Bug's Life how we were supposed to prepare for our our kids for the war on terrorism? In some... This film is a toxic brew. Kids deserve better. Woo! Darn it, Andy. I, I forgot that we had also shoehorned this into our Red Dawn family of films. <laughs> right. well, it's too bad we kicked that down the road. Oh, man, that's so funny. Well, I've got a one star. Uh, it's a kid's review, and it says, This earns, earned zero stars with me. This movie is so overly boring. I've watched it only two times. Well, I couldn't even sit through it the second time. It is actually painful to watch because it's so boring. If I could give this item zero stars, then I would. I couldn't watch this movie again if you paid me to. I don't get why such a movie ever made it into Hollywood. If you are looking for an interesting and fun movie, try the Spy Kids trilogy. Now that's something that I can watch through again and again. Bugs Life is not worth the money even to rent it. It needs some serious redoing. And if there's ever a Bugs Life 2, I will not be watching it because this movie was just too boring. I couldn't believe it if people were to call it a comedy. It isn't funny one bit. And instead of rating it G, it should be rated SB for so boring. (laughs) This isn't on my recommendations list and it could never make my top 10 list of hits. It could definitely make the top 10 list of the most boring movies ever made. It's got an SB. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Amazon. This is a situation where grammarians just aren't pushing themselves hard enough. I know. It really should be something. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. (laughs) I like how he says, sent from my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I didn't even see that. Are you sure that's just not an iPhone? No, that's Are you that sure? is the thing. Yes, absolutely. He, he actually it is. changed that so it didn't say send for my no. iPhone to send for my phone. <laughs> no. Look, because you could say you could actually put the I. It looks like iPhone. It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Right? Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it even more. Oh, God, that makes me hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you, you go, Dennis Vance. <laughs> oh, that God, was a that's great a comment. Oh, it's man. even better now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I've been podcasting since 2006. 
In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.